The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. I show up on campus my freshman year wanting to do my own thing. I had my own expectations for my life. I don't know if you guys have ever had seasons in your life where you had your own expectations, or maybe you're living in a moment in your life right now where you're going by your own expectations. You want to do your thing. uh, You've got your own plans. um, And at that point in my life, I wasn't really paying attention to how God was calling and, and wanting to use me. Um, I planned on going to college to play baseball, I planned on going to college to play video games, and I planned to go to college to have fun without my parents (laughs) lording over me, right? And so maybe a lot of you can relate and show up on campus freshman year, and this annoying RA keeps knocking on my door, John Kleinschmidt. He, for some reason, wanted to hang out. He wanted to read the Bible together. He wanted uh, to talk about Jesus. He wanted me to come to worship um, on Monday nights with him. He wanted me to go to church with him on Sunday mornings. And like I said, I had my own expectations. And God, I believe, looking back at it, in the moment, I was like, John, just leave me alone. Uh, But now, looking back, I can see how God has used friends in my life, has used others in my life, Uh, to spur me on, to encourage me, and to keep me um, living for Jesus and living out my faith. So thank you, John, for that. I say all this so you know a bit about me as we prepare to dive into Luke chapter 19. And as I look back on my life, like I said, I had earthly expectations for what I want to do. I had Aaron-sized expectations for my life. Yes, I knew Jesus was my Savior, but I wasn't following him as my Lord. Sure, I knew Jesus was going to return and my eternity was sealed with him, but I was being lazy and selfish with the time and the gifts he, was, he had given me on this earth. And that's what I see as I read Luke chapter 19. The Jews had their own expectations about life and about eternity. They had expectations that A king was coming for them in that moment to set up an earthly kingdom. They had expectations that God was going to set up this earthly kingdom for them. And yet Jesus shows up and he's teaching the first century listeners with this parable. And what he's teaching us today is that Jesus is Lord and he has kingly expectations for his people. I want to read the passage one more time for you guys. I'm actually using the CSB And so if you could follow along with me, I just want to read it again as we set up uh, the teaching time. Luke chapter 19, verse 11 starts this. As they were listening to this, he went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and they thought the kingdom of God was going to appear right away. Therefore, he said, a nobleman traveled to a far country to receive for himself authority to be king, and then to return. He called ten of his servants, gave them ten, ten minus, And told them, engage in business until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We don't want this man to rule over us. At his return, having received the authority to be king, he summoned those servants he had given the money to, to, excuse me, he had summoned those servants he had given the money to, so that he could find out how much they made in business. The first came forward and said, Master, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, good servant, he told him. Because you have been faithful in a very small matter, have authority over ten towns. 
The second came and said, Master, your mina has made five more. So he said to him, you will be over five towns. And another came and said, Master, here's your mina. I have kept it safe in a cloth because I was afraid of you since, you're, since you are a harsh man. You collect what you didn't deposit and reap what you didn't sow. He told him, I will condemn you by what you have said, you evil servant. If you knew I was a harsh man, collecting what I didn't deposit and reaping what I didn't sow, why then didn't you put my money in the bank? And when I returned, I could have collected it with interest. So he said to those standing there, take the mine away from him and give it to the one who has ten. But they said to him, Master, he already has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given, and from the one who does not have, even what he does have will be taken away. But bring here these enemies of mine who did not want me to rule over them and slaughter them in my presence. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time, this opportunity to be with my friends at Delta Church. God, I thank you for the opportunity to be responsible for preaching your word. God, I thank you for the calling uh, that you have blessed me with, Lord. Now as we enter in a time of studying your word, God, as, as the words are preached, God, I pray that I do not <laughs> hinder those from hearing, God, that you use me as your mouthpiece, God, to share your word and your truth with us this morning. Help us to draw near to you this morning and teach us, convict us, God, where we fall short, Lord. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. And so as we go back and look at Luke chapter 19 and what this passage has for us today, I want to just dive right into verse 11. And he says this, awesome, it's on the board, great deal. He says this, as they were listening to this, I just want to stop right there and set up the context. I know you guys have been working through John, uh, or Jonathan has been working through the gospel of Luke with you guys and so if you have been paying attention over the last few weeks, you may understand the context, but I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. He says, as they were listening to this, that brings up a lot of questions of what's going on and who are we talking about. So what are they listening to? Who is the they? And what is the this? Well, if you go back at the beginning of chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, it's the familiar passage of Jesus interacting with Zacchaeus. And it ends in verse 9 by Jesus telling, Today salvation has come to this house. Jesus is telling Zacchaeus, Salvation is yours because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. And so we get to verse 11. It says, They were listening to this. So there's this crowd at Zacchaeus' dinner party. So we have the disciples. We have Jesus, Zacchaeus. We have uh, the Jewish community that just wants to know what's going on. Probably a few tax collector friends are hanging out there too with Zacchaeus. And so there's this dinner party crowd. And of course, the Pharisees are there as well. And, and Jesus recognizes as they were listening to this, this message of salvation. And so as the Jewish community was listening to Jesus teach Zacchaeus about salvation is what he's telling us there in verse 11. As Jesus was telling Zacchaeus about salvation, he went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they thought the kingdom of God was going to appear right away. That right there gives a lot of context of what's going on and why Jesus shares this parable uh, with those around him. And it really helps us to understand if this is what it meant to them in the first century, this is what it means to us today. Right here, Luke tells us why Jesus said the parable. And this parable is extremely applicable to us. 
Jesus knows that the Jews are wanting this earthly kingdom. They had a misunderstanding of who the Messiah was going to be and what the Messiah was going to be all about. And so for generations, they have been under secular law, under pagan authority. They are concerned about their earthly comfort. And this is a trap that we too often can fall back into, especially in our American churches. We want God to do away with our secular governments. We want God to, do, to intervene in our worldly laws. We want God to reestablish a moral authority here on this earth that aligns with our Christian faith so that we can be more comfortable in this life. I know I've seen that a lot uh, over the last few elections as I got older and started voting myself and a lot of my peer groups uh, were, were voting as well. This is always a topic of conversation and and so often the, the church can put their faith in a political party or political candidate one way or the other um, t- to help establish God's kingdom through earthly laws. And Jesus is reminding the Jews, they had the same expectation. Jesus is reminding us today, uh, that's a distorted view of who the Messiah is and what the Messiah is all about. And so we can, we can get focused on how can God change our earthly situation now, and all of a sudden, we are no longer focused on things above, on godly things, on the kingdom of God, but we become fixated on the kingdom of our comfort. I know I fall into that trap a lot. Um, God, how can the school system better serve you so that it can better serve my family? How can the laws in Illinois be changed so that ministry is easier? How can the society Follow your moral standard so that when I talk to others, there's less arguments about my faith. And if we're not careful, it's all about how can this life be more comfortable for me as I live out my faith. And so as we look back at the first century church and the the first century apostles, apostles and the first century narrative, man, we think about how awesome it would be if our church was alive and multiplying like it did in Acts. I mean, just think about that. How great would it be if thousands came to faith in Christ daily because leaders in your church were proclaiming the gospel? Um, how cool would it be if Delta Church and Chatham Baptist Church were remembered for all eternity for the missions, missionaries that we sent out, like we remember Antioch as they sent out Paul? Um, think about, we, we go back and we think about how great it would be to be remembered like we fondly look at the church in Acts, the first century church. But do you know what was true about the first century? See, that church existed in a world that was anti-Jesus, <laughs> which was under secular governments who allowed the society, the governments allowed the society around them to persecute the church. And God didn't grant them comfort, but he used their circumstances as a catalyst to see the gospel message spread to the ends of the world, and the church explode. Persecution and hardship forced the first century church out of Jerusalem and out of their comfort zones. And so here's the truth that I think I've come to know as I've matured in life. What we want, what I want, what we want as a church, it pales in comparison to what God has planned. 
If we get what we want, think about what we would miss out on. If this first century group of Jews in this community actually got the Messiah to set up an earthly kingdom, they somehow talked God into changing his plan, saying, all right, Jesus, set up a kingdom now. Let's focus on the here and the now. Let's forget about eternity. If they got what they wanted, if, they, if their expectations were met, think about what they would miss out on. Think about what we would miss out on for eternity. Paul supports this. Uh, in his letter to the Ephesians. In chapter 3 of Ephesians, we see Paul praying for the church to rely on the Holy Spirit's power to help them minister to the Gentiles. And in chapter 3, uh, verse 20 and 21, he says this. I believe it'll be on the board for you. Perfect. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus for all generations, forever and ever. God can do more than I, than you, than Delta, than Chatham Baptist. God can do more than I can ever think or imagine. My best expectations for my life don't even compare to what God has planned. And so that's the setting of Luke 19. Jesus is talking to a group of Jews who wanted earthly victory and comfort now, yet Jesus is about to remind them who is king, and what his expectations are for his life. So let's jump back in to Luke chapter 19, verses 12 and 13. It says this, So after realizing that their heart desired an earthly king, Jesus says this in verse 12, Therefore he said, A nobleman traveled to a far country to see for himself authority to be king, and then to return. He called ten of his servants, gave them ten, ten minas, and told them, Engage in business until I come back. Clearly, this is an analogy about Jesus himself. We already discussed how the Jews were wanting this earthly kingdom. And we see in this parable that the king clearly represents Jesus. Jesus is telling them again that he is not here to stay. He is not here to set up this earthly kingdom. He's on a mission from the Father, and when he departs, it will be to return as the king of kings, with full authority over the kingdom of God. What an amazing promise, guys. We are currently living in the in-between days where we know from God's word that Jesus has already claimed the future victory over the kingdom of darkness, but yet we are still waiting for that return, for his second coming. Pastor Jonathan told me uh, that you have all been seeing from God's word how we are expectant people. We know the victory is his, but what are we doing while we wait for his return? This passage reinforces that mentality. In the meantime, we are part of the spiritual battle taking place over creation. You don't have to look far, right? We don't, we don't have to look very far, turn on any news station. We can see darkness in our present day. It's in our hearts, it's in our society, it's in our world. You don't have to look far to see that. And to be aware of the spiritual battle that we are in. But Jesus is king for all eternity and he will return to reign. But what do we do until that time comes? What can we expect, or better yet, what does the king expect of us? In preparation for this morning, I was using uh, William Barclay's commentary. I don't know if you guys have ever used commentaries just to help, uh, help you to understand the text, give some more insight into it. And I was thinking... Um, I love the way he talks about the two main points, and instead of trying to come up with something fancy or original or clever, I thought I'd just use his words. 
So these two points that we're going to look at today are actually the way that Barclay words it. And the first thing we see from this parable is that this parable tells us of the king's trust. This parable tells us of the king's trust. The king is trusting his servants to handle his business while he's away. Verse 13 actually in the CSB uses the phrase, engage in business until I come back. Think about that for a moment. If this king in this parable represents Jesus, then Jesus is telling uh, his followers in the first century, and he's telling us now through his word, hey, I'm coming back, but until I do, engage in my business until I return. So while we're expectant people in the in-between time of the first and second comings of our King Jesus, we too are responsible for the business of the king. The king is trusting his servants with his business. Jesus is trusting his church with his ministry. Um, That, in my life, in my heart, brings about a few responses (laughs) within me, if I'm being honest. That sounds amazing, and I am very humbled and excited to be used by the king in such a way. Um, That also scares me a little bit, that God is going to entrust his business, his name, his kingdom with me. Um, what, a, what a beautiful obligation, what a beautiful place we, we are living in, that God is entrusting the work of his ministry with his church. You know, I mean, we talk about God's sovereignty all the time in our churches. God is sovereign. God can do what he wants. God can make people bend the knee and submit to his authority if he wanted to. And yet the beauty of this life and the beauty of ministry and the beauty of the gospel is that God entrusts us to share the good news, to share with love what God has done for us with those around us. And so God has called us as individuals, but also as the church to engage in his business while we await the return of our King Jesus. The king in this parable is called these servants and has commanded them, here is a gift I'm giving you. In this case, it's literally money. Uh, He's saying, here's a gift I'm going to give you. Use it to expand my glory until I return. And that sparks a couple questions as we study this passage today. What is your gift? How are you using it for Jesus while you wait for his return. We see throughout Scripture, when, especially the New Testament, right, when, when Paul and others are teaching about the role of the Holy Spirit, Jesus himself says, hey, when I leave, the Holy Spirit's coming back. And then we see from other teachings that the Holy Spirit dwells in the lives of the church, dwells in the children of God to empower us with gifts for the glory of the church for the ministry of the church. Not for ourselves, not to make ourselves feel better, not to make ourselves more important, but to glorify God through ministry in the local church. So we see this gift terminology used other places of the New Testament. God has gifted his church with unique gifts to serve him while we wait for the return of our king. And so if you know Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, if you proclaim him as the Savior and the Lord of your life, then you are promised the power and the presence of our God through the Holy Spirit in your life. And if you have the Holy Spirit in your life, you have gifts from God to be used in ministry until your king returns. That's very clear throughout Scripture. And this parable 
It's kind of setting the foundation of that truth. So what is your gift, and how are you using it for Jesus while you wait for his return? As expectant people of God living in the in-between days, how are you preparing yourself and others for the king's return? Because here's what we see in this parable. Upon the king's return, the servants are rewarded appropriately and fairly. Luke goes on in uh, chapter 19, verses 15 through 19, to talk about the first two servants that return. At his return, having received the authority to be king, he summoned those servants he had given the money to so that he could find out how much they had made in business. The first came forward and said, The first came forward and said, Master, your mind has earned ten more. Well done, good servant, he told him, because you have been faithful in a very small matter. Excuse me. Skip the page. Master, your mind has, in, has earned ten more minas. Well done, good servant, he told him. Because you have been faithful in a very small matter, have authority over ten towns. The second came and said, Master, your mind has earned five. So he said, you will be over five towns. So we see how they re- are rewarded uh, appropriately and fairly. But then the third one shows up. And for whatever reason, he was scared. Uh, maybe he was a little lazy while the king was gone. That might be some of us in here. Maybe sometimes we're scared while we're waiting for our king to return. Maybe sometimes we're lazy as we wait for a king to return. Sometimes we're just apathetic, if we're being honest. There's days where we just don't care <laughs> about others because of what we're facing, right? If we're being honest with ourselves, we can fall into these same traps. And so we see the third one return to the king in verse 20. It says this, And another came and said, Master, here's your mina. I've kept it safe in a cloth because I was afraid of you since you're a harsh man. You collect what you didn't deposit and reap what you didn't sow. And he told him, I will condemn you by what you have said, you evil servant. If you knew I was a harsh man collecting what I didn't deposit and reaping what I didn't sow, why then didn't you put my money in the bank? And when I returned, I would have collected it with interest. So he said to those standing there, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten. So I ask again, church, how are you using your gift for Jesus while you wait for his return? The second thing that this parable tells us about the king is it tells us about the king's test. tells us about the king's trust, and now it also tells us about the king's test. As we look at the interaction once again as the king returns, we see how he was testing his servants. The first two proved faithful and therefore were given responsibility upon his return. Yet the one who did nothing was actually stripped of the king's gift altogether. Man, how does this relate? It sounds pretty harsh, the way he reacts to the third guy, the way he's treated. It sounds pretty harsh. So how does this relate to our Christian journey today? We see this same truth elsewhere in Scripture. In Revelation, uh, it's talking about the churches. Um, need to repent and get back to kingdom work, right? There's seven churches, they're all failing at something, and and they're reminded by God to get back to their kingdom work, or else they will lose their lampstand. Jesus himself calls us, his followers, his church, the light of the world. So this analogy of light representing uh, the presence of God in and through the lives of his church family. And so the lampstand is is a similar analogy used in Revelation 3. Jesus is telling the churches, telling his disciples through this parable, and telling us today through his word that if we are lazy, if we are afraid, if we're apathetic about using what he has given us 
to spread his kingdom, then he will remove our blessing. Man, what a dreadful place to be in. Think about that. That the king, king comes to you and says, you have not been representing me well. You have been representing yourself. I'm going to take that blessing from you. And I think we can all, unfortunately, think of a person or a church that seems spiritually dead. Their light no longer shines. For a church, if the church isn't faithfully ministering to the world with the gifts King Jesus has bestowed upon them, then why would Jesus bless that ministry? According to this parable, he will move that blessing and trust it to someone else who has already proven faithful. I can think of an example of this. I won't name names because I don't know if anybody knows, but it's not, it's not at Chatham Baptist Church. at a different church I know. Um, this one, small country church was struggling, uh, was not faithfully ministering to its community, was not loving on others well, was not representing Jesus. They were comfortable with what they had, the status quo, and they had this one young family that had uh, a whole herd of kids, and they were all excited. This family was excited about VBS, and they wanted to see the whole community. You could see the whole community from the guy's front yard because it was a small community. Um, and he wanted to see his whole community come to faith in Jesus Christ. And he thought, man, what a great way to do this, but through the kids, through VBS ministry. Let's, let's get these kids to meet Jesus through VBS and watch that ignite a passion for Jesus in the families. And so to help get kids in this small, poor community to VBS, he said, hey, anybody in the town that wants to go to VBS come to my house first. I will feed you for free. I'll grill burgers, hot dogs. He lived right across the street from the church, so he's going to feed the entire town if it took that, that much effort to get those kids to VBS. So the first night he does this, uh, the, the church is busted at the scene. Biggest VBS they ever had. Workers are overwhelmed. You know, when we plan for ministry, how often do we plan with our own expectations versus Ephesians chapter 3 expectations of God, right? And so I think that's kind of where the church realized, oh no, what do we do with this many kids? The next day, the guy got called into the deacon's office, small church, deacons kind of ran the thing, um, and said, hey, we don't like what you're doing, stop it. It's changing too fast, there's too many new people. This was uh, Tuesday night. That Sunday... 20 people from that church came to join our church. <laughs> God had taken the blessing of this family from that church that wasn't going to use the gifts that they had been entrusted with, and that whole family, which was a big family and relatives, they all showed up at our church the next week, and within a month, 20 people had joined our church, ready to use the gifts that God had entrusted them with. And so I could just think of an example in my personal life, and maybe you can relate. Maybe you've been a part of a church like that where it just seems like no ministry is happening. That's a dreadful place to be. So as we think about the reality that our king is coming back someday, we as expectant people of God need to be about the king's business, not our own. Like Jesus could come back right now. That would have been awesome. Um, but Jesus could come back at any moment and so we need to, as expected people, be all about the king's business right now because we don't know how much longer we have. There are two other truths that we see in this parable that I want to highlight kind of as warnings for each of us today. And the first is this. Many will reject the king's authority. Excuse me. Many will reject Jesus' authority as king. Verse 14 shares this with us. He says, 
But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we don't want this man to rule over us. You know, think about what that means to be a subject. Subjects include everyone, right? All creation belongs to King Jesus, therefore anyone in creation is a subject of his kingdom. Jesus is king whether you like it or not. Jesus is king whether the world likes it or not. If you live in London, guess who's your king? Charles III is your king in England whether you like it or not. The king doesn't need your permission or your obedience to be king. He is the king. And in fact, that fact that Jesus is king does not sit well with many people. In fact, the truth is it's made people angry for over 2,000 years now. We see that clearly in Scripture because they want to crucify him and get rid of him because he didn't meet their expectations. But we live in a world today that hasn't really changed much since the Roman world. In fact, if you study what was going on in Rome uh, when the New Testament was being birthed and the first church was starting, uh, there's not a whole lot of differences between that Rome and this U.S. (laughs) Um, They were the center of political thought, in the world. They were the social hub. They were the home to people from all tribes and nations. They were at the forefront of entertainment, the forefront of culture, the forefront of creating ways to sin. And the U.S. is very much that today. It just looks shinier and we use electricity now. Um, And so there's not much difference from what the early church was facing versus what we are facing today. And so the fact is that many get angry at the truth that Jesus is king. And so what does that mean for us today? I think the first thing that we need to always remember is don't be surprised if the world reacts negatively to your faith. Don't be surprised if the world reacts negatively to your faith. Because you know what? Jesus isn't surprised. Jesus wasn't surprised. Jesus actually warns the disciples, hey, the world's going to hate you because it hates me. Um, He calls the gospel foolishness to those who aren't in the church, who don't know Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior. So Jesus wasn't surprised that there were going to be some naysayers. Jesus wasn't surprised when people reacted negatively uh, to his authority. And so we don't need to be surprised. And that kind of ties into the next thing I think is true. Don't take it personal if the world reacts negative. Don't be surprised, but also don't take it personally. They are rebelling against our king, not you. Because we tend to, as is in our human nature as people, when somebody puts down something you like, or they put you down, or they make fun of your family to your face, we tend to take that personally, right? If someone says something negative about something in your life that you enjoy, you get mad. Um, Like I said earlier, I'm a Braves fan, but all my friends back home are either Cardinals fans or Cubs fans. Cardinals fans? Do we have Cardinals fans in here? I wasn't for sure. Last year was kind of rough, so I wasn't sure if you're going to claim it or not. Cubs fans? Hey, that was quick. Hey, look at that. And no cheering. It's still Cubs. Come on. Um, but this is what I do with my friends. If I just want to be a little ornery and stir things up in our chat, um, or just it, we're, we go on baseball trips together, and so I'll just say something negative about the Cardinals and watch the pot stir. Or I can throw something negative about the Cubs and watch the pot stir. Yet I can have fun watching them react and taking it personally that I'm making fun of their favorite teams. Now, if you say something bad about the Braves, 
we're going to have a throwdown. So I get it. I get it. I take it personally too. But that's how our human nature, we react personally when people put down the things that we are passionate about. We get defensive when others are offensive. We respond uh, not in love but in hate with rudeness, with anger, with sarcasm. I'm great at sarcasm, still dealing with it, pray for me. Um, And so we react defensively when people put things down in our life that we are passionate about. If we do that with the gospel, if we do that with our King Jesus, we are going to hinder that person from ever meeting Jesus. It's not about us. It's about introducing people to our King. And so we cannot take it personally when we are rejected we got to continue to love like Christ. You just think about Jesus' example in this. He was asking the Father to forgive those who were literally beating him, mocking him, and killing him. And I want God to smite every Mets fan (laughs) that I meet, right? So we cannot take it personally when people take our king authority for granted. But we got to continue to respond in love so that we have future opportunities to share the good news. That we have future opportunities to use the gifts God has given us for his glory in somebody else's life. And the other thing, I think, uh, the fact that people reject Jesus' authority teaches us today is don't forget who is king when circumstances are crazy. Nothing in this life will ever change the fact that Jesus is king for all eternity. And yet we think from time to time, that God has forgotten us, that that our circumstances are too big. Woe is me. How could God allow this to happen? And we often take that for granted, that Jesus is king for all eternity. There's this cool analogy that um, a friend of mine actually showed me on TikTok. I don't have TikTok. I'm not that techie. Um, But there's a lot of ministry, a lot of cool stuff on there. Um, It can be used for the glory of God. Um, like anything, anything can be abused and used for selfish pleasure, and everything can be used just about for the glory of God as well. And so uh, this analogy, this guy sitting in his car, and the Eiffel Tower's right there, and from his perspective in his car, the little air freshener hanging from his mirror that looked like the Eiffel Tower, to him where he was at, looked bigger than the Eiffel Tower itself. Now any common sense tells us Well, that's not true, right? The Eiffel Tower is clearly bigger than the minty air freshener inside the car. But from his perspective, the the air freshener was right in front of his face, and he was focused on it so much that it minimized the Eiffel Tower. And the analogy in the video goes on to say this is how we treat God in tough circumstances. We get so caught up in the circumstances that are right in front of our face. We get so wrapped up with, woe is me, what am I going to do right here, right now, that our circumstances look insurmountable and our God looks far away and small. And we can get that way when evangelism is hard, when ministry gets tough, when we are rejected for our faith. And we can get to thinking, man, in the, in the United States of America, where laws aren't godly, where, where schools are teaching other things besides the truth of Scripture. In this secular culture, there is no way I can share my faith because it's just too much around me. And so when people reject the authority of king, we need to realize that no matter what, Jesus will always be king. We need to focus on the majesty of King Jesus and not our circumstances in front of us. 
And the other thing that this passage teaches us as kind of a warning is don't take this life for granted. Don't take this life for granted. In verse 26, Jesus goes on to say, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. And from the one who does not have, even what he does have will be taken away. I just love how Barclay summarizes this. So I just want to read this to you, one little paragraph as he breaks down what this passage is telling us. He says this, The parable concludes with one of the common laws of life. To him who has, more will be given. From him who has not, what he has will be taken away. If a man plays a game and goes on practicing at it, he will play it with ever greater efficiency. If he does not practice, he will lose much of whatever knack and ability he has. If we discipline and train our bodies, they will grow even fitter and stronger. If we do not, they will grow flabby and lose much of the strength that they have. If a schoolboy learns Latin and goes on with his learning, the wealth of Latin literature will open wider and wider to him. If he does not go on learning, he will forget much of the Latin he knows. If we really strive after goodness and master this and that temptation, new vistas and new heights of goodness will open to us. If we give up the battle and take the easy way, much of the resistance power we once possessed will be lost and we will slip from whatever height we had attained. There's no such thing as standing still in the Christian life. We either get more or lose what we have. We either advance to greater heights or slip back. And he's talking about our relationship with Jesus. As a student minister of 16 years now, I can see a lot of unfortunate examples where Students I know had made a profession of faith early in their life and then took the rest of their life for granted. They had the opportunity each and every day from that moment of salvation to get to know Jesus better and more personally in their life. They had an opportunity each and every day to spend time with the King, and they chose not to. I know a lot of great senior adults in churches throughout the years that have spent the last 50, 60, 70 years taking this life for granted. They made a profession of faith as a child, and they didn't spend time with Jesus each and every day, and they missed out on the opportunity to know Jesus more in this life. We have, you know, Brother Brian was talking about we can read for the most part in America. We have the Bible readily accessible in paper. Uh, a lot of us can just turn on our phones, and we have it. We can Google a verse. We can say, hey, Alexa, read Luke chapter 19, and speakers in our house will start reading God's word to us. We have the scripture so easily available, and the scripture gives us access to our Heavenly Father each and every day. We have the opportunity to know Jesus more and more. And the more we get to know Jesus, the more fuller picture of his goodness and his love we come to know, and the more we desire and so, don't take this life for granted. Don't be like this servant who had an opportunity to be a part of the king's kingdom and wasted it. If someone, and here's the reality, guys, the king in this parable is telling that those who reject him will basically be destroyed. If we go back and just look at the 27th verse real quick as we close. But bring here these enemies of mine who did not want me to rule over them, and slaughter them in my presence. That sounds very harsh. <laughs> but if we know <laughs> Scripture in its entirety, if we understand God's justness, if we understand God's plan for salvation, we know that those who reject the king will be sent and condemned to hell for all eternity. 
And so Jesus is warning them, my enemies who never knew me, bring them here and they will be slaughtered. That's a very harsh way of saying that. And so the king in the parable is telling them that those who reject him will basically be destroyed. And that is the reality of this life too. Those who reject King Jesus before he returns will be put to death for eternity. And that's what it's all about, church. Kingdom work is about sharing the goodness of our King Jesus with urgency so that those who hear have an opportunity to respond to him. If someone in my life is going to hell, I want it to be because they rejected the king's authority, not because I didn't tell them about my king. I don't want to find out there are people that God placed in my life so that I could tell them about Jesus that end up in hell because I failed to tell them about Jesus. We don't know when the king will return, therefore every day is vital in his people engaging in his business so that as many people are ready for his return as possible. Do you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord today? As we wait expectantly for his return, have you put your faith in him? Because we see how serious the decision is that upon his return, his enemies will be li- who are living in opposition to the king will face destruction. Yet God loves each of us so much that he sent Jesus to die in our place, to take the wrath upon himself so that if we place our faith in him, if we surrender to his lordship in this life, he will take our sinful nature and grant us his righteousness, make us right with God through adoption into the family of God. If we respond to his love and faith, he is faithful to forgive. And church, if you know Jesus as Savior and Lord already, then this passage gives us a simple and stern command to use the time and gifts the king has given us as we wait for his return for his glory. So I want to end by asking the questions again. What is your gift? And how are you using it for King Jesus while we wait for his return? Let us pray. Dearly Father, I thank you so much for this time to dive into this parable in Luke, God. I thank you for this opportunity to be here to share uh, what you have laid on my heart for this church, God. And I pray now as we close today, God, that we all have business to, to do with you, Lord, whether that's the first decision in our life to recognize your authority for the first time and submit and ask for forgiveness and repent and give our lives to you as King and Lord and Savior, Lord, or whether uh, maybe the business for most of us in here is, Lord, God, help us not to be lazy while we wait. Help us not to be uh, apathetic while we wait. Help us not to be afraid while we wait. But God, give us boldness to use the gifts you have entrusted us with for your glory while we wait for your return, God. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.